For the last six months, we have given careful consideration to the Gospel of Mark. As a mountain climber enjoys the challenge, loves the landscape, he always has his sights set on the peak of the mountain. So we have enjoyed the journey. We have loved the landscape of the gospel, but we have always had our sights set on the climactic conclusion. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just part of the gospel story. It is the most important part of the gospel story. Everything about our faith rises and falls upon the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection is the crux of Christianity. It is the core of our salvation. As the people of God, we have repetitively and unapologetically proclaimed throughout the last 2,000 years that though Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, on the third day, he got up. Jesus was raised from the dead. In Acts chapter 4, we are told that with great power, the apostles testified to the resurrection and much grace was upon them all. In Romans, the apostle Paul instructs us that whoever with their lips confesses that Jesus is Christ and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. In one of Paul's longest teaching passages, we read of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Resurrection is the topic of the hour. And Paul says that if Christ be not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. The resurrection is the centerpiece of Christianity. It is to this topic that we give our attention this morning. It is to this topic that we gather our thoughts around. So this morning, for one more time, I invite you to take your Bible. Turn to Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word and listen as I read in your hearing. Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 1, concluding at verse 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out 
and fled from the tomb, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. By the Spirit's power in your hearing today, let me preach a sermon that's simply entitled, A Holy Hush. To God be the glory. You may be seated. Mark tells us that when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went and bought spices to anoint the body of Jesus. This is not the first time that we've been introduced to these three ladies. In Mark chapter 15, verse 40, we find these three by name as they're standing at a distance watching the crucifixion of Christ. In Mark chapter 15, verse 47, two out of the three of these ladies are eyewitness accounts and they see firsthand where Joseph of Arimathea and his friend Nicodemus placed the dead body of Jesus in the grave. Mary Magdalene had been a follower of Jesus since the first day that he cast out seven demons from her body. Salome was a follower of Jesus. She was the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, two of the closest disciples of our Lord. Mary, the mother of James, she too was a follower of Jesus. There is some ambiguity as to her identity. James uh, is the son of Mary. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Mark describes Mother Mary and says that she is the mother of James and Jose and several other children. And many have speculated that this Mary, the mother of James, is none other than Mother Mary. But others have said, if that's the mother, the virgin mother of Jesus, then why not say Mary, the mother of our Lord? Some have speculated that this Mary is the wife of Clopas. There are other gospel writers that tell us that the wife of Clopas was named Mary. She had a son named James. And this Mary, the wife of Clopas, was there at the foot of the cross. While there may be some ambiguity as to the identity of all three of these ladies, make no mistake about it, their activity is crystal clear. When the Sabbath was over, they went and bought spices to anoint the body of Jesus. When the Sabbath was over, it's important for us to note that in antiquity, a 24-hour day was rendered from about 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. So the Sabbath would have begun approximately 6 o'clock on Friday night. It would have ended approximately 6 o'clock on Saturday night. The Jewish law uh, was written and it was forbidden for anyone to do any business transaction on the Sabbath. But there was more than a few Jewish merchants who when the clock struck 6.01, opened the shop. 
so they could get a couple of hours of business before the day was over. It's probably in this hour, somewhere around six or seven o'clock at night on a Saturday, when these three ladies go and purchase spices, ointment, perfume to anoint the body of Jesus. They concluded that at this late hour, it's too dangerous for us to travel to the cemetery. Even though they knew exactly where the dead body of Jesus was located, they thought to themselves and they said one to the other, let's wait till early the next morning. Now you may wonder to yourself, why are these ladies purchasing perfume and ointment and spice to anoint the body of Jesus? For you've read the other gospels. And according to John, we understand that Joseph of Arimathea and his friend Nicodemus had 75 pounds of myrrh that they used to anoint the body of Christ. 75 pounds. They took the body down. They anointed it with myrrh. They wrapped it in strips of linen. They placed it into a borrowed tomb. And together, Joseph and Nicodemus struggled to roll the stone in front of the entrance. Now, I don't know if Mrs. Nicodemus was involved with essential oils. I don't know if Nicodemus was just a wealthy man, but regardless, 75 pounds of myrrh is a lot. You think to yourself, that sounds like a lot to buy. It sounds like a lot to anoint the body of Jesus. So why, just a day or two later, would these ladies need to buy additional spice, additional perfume, additional ointment to anoint the body of our Lord? And the answer is that the Jewish people did not embalm the dead. And so this was an act of love and devotion. Under the Israeli heat and climate of the day, it did not take long for a dead body to begin to decay. And when a dead body decays, it begins to stink. And so these three ladies thought to themselves, the body of our Lord has been in the grave for some time now. It's already beginning to stink. We've got to go and anoint his body afresh because we don't want any foul stench of death to overtake the grave and overtake the body of Jesus. So on the first day of the week, while it was still early, before dawn, these three ladies go to the tomb with ointment in hand to anoint the body of the Lord. All four gospel writers are extremely consistent on this matter. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all say it was the first day of the week. Early on the first day of the week, these ladies went to the tomb now what is obnoxiously obvious is that these women expected to find a dead Jesus. They expected to find a dead body. Not any of them expected to find the living Lord. All of them expected to find a dead Christ. Now what makes that so remarkable is that on at least three occasions in Mark's gospel, Jesus has given crystal clear prediction of his end of life scenario. On three occasions in Mark chapter 
8 verse 31, Mark chapter 9 verse 31, Mark chapter 10 verse 33, Jesus has spoken about his upcoming betrayal and beating and death and he also says on the third day I will be raised from the dead. And no follower, male or female, believed the prediction of Jesus. Had they believed the predictions of Jesus, then the disciples would have camped out right there at the garden tomb. But you don't find any of them at the garden tomb. Where are the disciples? They are huddled in the upper room, waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for the Roman soldiers to come and tap, tap, tap on the door, seize them, and crucify them just like they crucified Jesus. Not one of those disciples expected Jesus to actually fulfill his prediction. None of these ladies thought that Jesus would be alive either. They took the ointment to anoint his dead body. What makes matters worse? It's the third day. Once again, according to Jewish rendering, any part of one day constitutes an entire day. So the dead body of Jesus was taken off the cross on Friday afternoon. It was placed into the grave Friday afternoon before Sabbath began. So because it's in the grave on Friday, that's day one. Jesus' body was in the grave all day on Saturday called the Sabbath. That's day two. And now... It's early on the first day of the week, so Sunday has already happened, and Sunday has taken place. So so Jesus' dead body was in the grave for a few hours on Sunday. That's day three. It's the third day, and Jesus clearly said in his predictions that on the third day, I will be raised from the dead. It's the third day, and nobody, male or female, is thinking to themselves, this is resurrection day. This is the first day of the week. This is Sunday. This is the day that Jesus is going to get up. No disciples at the tomb. These ladies do not ask each other the question, what are you going to do the first time you see the resurrected Lord? Are you going to praise him? Are you going to stand in his glory? Are you going to bow down and worship him? Are you going to sing? Are you going to dance? What are you going to do? The first time that you lay your eyes on the resurrected Lord, because today is the third day. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. We know that he's alive. So what are you going to do the first time you see the resurrected Christ? They don't ask those questions. What question is on their mind? Who's going to roll away the stone for us? Because it's very large. So we've got to get in to where the dead body is. These women were not anticipating a living Lord. They were looking for a dead Jesus. It is Matthew in his rendering. Tells us that on the first day of the week, there was a violent localized earthquake. An angel came from heaven and rolled the stone away. The Roman government had sealed that stone. The Roman government had posted two Roman soldiers to guard the entrance to the tomb because the Jewish leaders had gone to Pontius Pilate saying, we can't handle a resurrection rumor. And if you're not careful, some of his disciples will go in and try to steal his body because that Khan said that on the third day I'd be raised from the dead and they'll try to steal his body and then they'll report that he's been raised. 
So we can't handle any resurrection rumor. So Pontius Pilate gave the permission. The Roman soldiers were there. Two soldiers were posted. When the angel descended, the violent earthquake, the stone was rolled away. Matthew says that those soldiers became like frightened men. They froze. They fell out like dead people. When the ladies of our story get there, either they were so fixated on the stone that they did not see the soldiers laying out, or by the time the ladies get there, those soldiers had come to and fled the scene. But regardless, these ladies are so overwhelmed that the front door is wide open. They're so overwhelmed that the stone has been rolled away. They enter the grave. Now let me just stop right here and remind you that the stone was rolled away not to get Jesus out of the grave. The stone was rolled away to get these women in the grave. Jesus had already been raised from the dead. And Jesus, who is a perfect gentleman, just simply opened the door for the ladies. He opened the door so they could come in. And what did they see? They saw an angel. They described him as a young man dressed in a white robe. He is there seated on the right side where the body of Christ should be. And they are alarmed. This angel notices that they're alarmed. Mark uses a word that is powerful. It's expansive. That word alarmed, Mark used to describe a, a crowd in Mark chapter 9. They had wonderful amazement. That same word is used to describe Jesus in Mark chapter 14 when he is in the garden of Gethsemane and he is distressed and troubled. It's a word that carries a wide range of emotions. Everything from thrill and excitement and wonder to distress and trouble and grief. And all of these things describe how these women are feeling. They don't quite know what to do with this. They see that the stone is rolled away. They enter. There's an angel. He's seated there. There's no body. There's no Jesus that's there. And they are alarmed. Don't be alarmed, the angel said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. The more accurate translation of that Greek word is he has been raised. That sentence in English is one word in Greek. Agero. That's the Greek word. Agero. It's one word, and one word changes everything. One word, he has been raised, Agero. This angel speaks one word and flips everything upside down. He says one word, one word, one word that changes everything. One word, Agero. On the first day of the week, Agero. While it was still early, Agero. The women went to the tomb, Agero. 
Jesus fulfilled his promise, a garrow. Sin has been defeated, a garrow. Death has been robbed of its finality, a garrow. Death has been stolen of its sting, a garrow. Life now has purpose, a garrow. Jesus has reversed the curse, a garrow. Now you have life to live, a garrow. Now you have a home in heaven, a garrow. Now your sins have been dealt with, a garrow. Now the grave has been overcome, a garrow. I came this morning just to remind you of this one single solitary word, a garrow, which simply means he has been raised. It's one word that changes everything. Come see the place where he lay, but he's not there anymore. Why? A garrow. He's not there because he has been raised. The instructions of the angel were simple and straightforward. Now go. Tell his disciples, especially Peter, that Jesus has gone on ahead of them into Galilee. And there he will meet them. Instructions seem pretty straightforward, don't they? Angel didn't stutter. No problem there. It's easy to understand. The instructions that were given to these ladies, go find the disciples. You know where they are. They're huddled in the upper room. I want you to tell them, and also Peter, especially Peter, because Peter is so distraught because he has denied the Lord, You go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee just as he foretold, just as he told them. And the women were trembling. Mark says they were bewildered. And they left the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I think this has to be the most deflating verse in all the Bible. You get to the end of his climactic experience where the angel says, A Garrow, he has been raised. Here's the instruction. Go and tell. Tell the disciples. Tell Peter. You know what to do. Go to Galilee. And he tells them, you understand what I'm saying? Yes, they understand what he's saying. They turn around and leave the tomb and they say nothing to anyone. It's deflating. It takes the air right out of the room. In fact, when I read the scripture passage, you got deflated. You became depressed, even on the looks on your faces. You thought to yourself, well, surely there's more to it than that. I mean, that's kind of a depressing way to end the story. Pastor's not going to end at verse 8, is he? Yeah. Even as we read it, we get uncomfortable. I mean, even as we read it, we kind of get squirmy just a bit. And we think to ourselves, why are these ladies walking out of the tomb and saying nothing to anyone? Well, Mark does answer that for us. I mean, the reason they don't say anything is because they are trembling and they are bewildered and they're afraid. The word trembling 
is tromos in Greek, from which we get the English word traumatic. These ladies had just had a traumatic experience. They didn't quite know how to piece it all together. They didn't know what was exactly going on. It was traumatic. They were trembling. You could see them. They were physically overcome. And at the same time of being trembling, they they were bewildered. That's a funny word. Nobody uses that word anymore today, really. Oh, you look bewildered. What's that? Nobody ever uses that word. The Greek word is ecstasis, which we get the English word ecstasy. To be filled with overwhelming feelings of happiness and joy. So at the same time of trembling, at the same time of, of having a traumatic experience, they still, they feel joy. Now Matthew articulates this for us in his version when he says that they left silent yet filled with joy. That's exactly what Mark is telling us. They had a traumatic experience. They, they left yet, yet filled with, with enormous feelings of happiness. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The word afraid in Greek is phobia. Guess what English word we get from that? That's right, phobia. It's exactly right, it's the same thing. And, and phobia, one of the definitions of phobia is to be a phenomenon that cannot be logically explained. That's what these women are feeling. They are seeing a phenomenon. They are are experiencing a phenomenon. And it cannot be logically explained. I mean, dead people don't get up again. Dead people are dead. In fact, we're supposed to anoint a dead body and there ain't no dead body here. This is a phenomenon. It cannot logically be explained. But it can super logically be explained. How can a dead person come back to life? Only if that dead person is Jesus the Christ. These women go out and they say nothing. Why? Well, because it's a traumatic experience. They're filled with fear. They're they're overcome with, with a phobia. They don't know what to say. Furthermore, they have concluded who would believe us. In that day and time, nobody listened to a woman's testimony, not in court. And even not outside of court. And so they thought to themselves, if we go, everybody will think we're crazy. If we go, they'll call us lunatics. If we go, they may even put us to death because they'll say, you don't even know what you're talking about. So they thought to themselves, people will laugh at us. People will ridicule us. They won't say a word to us. I want to also add to this that I think that Mark ends his gospel in verse 8. You say, okay, preacher, now you're just getting crazy. Because in my Bible, it clearly says there is Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. But if your Bible is anything like mine, right before verse 9, there's a disclaimer. And that disclaimer says something like this, that the following text cannot be found in the earliest manuscripts. You say, well, yeah, I see that there, but I don't know what that means. But clearly there's verse 9 followed by verse 10, verse 11, all the way down to verse 20. So how can you say that Mark ended his gospel at verse 8? Well, you know that before the printing press, copies of the scripture were hand copied by Christian monks. And those who interpret the scripture will say, and I think accurately so, that the oldest manuscripts are the most reliable manuscripts because they're the closest in proximity and in time to the original text that Mark would have written. In addition to that, 
the early church fathers, people like Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and Jerome, they all say that every version of Mark's gospel that we have seen ends in verse 8. Clement of Alexandria lived in the 200s. So my thought, my suggestion, which is not original with me, is that many people believe that there was some monk later than the third century who said what you felt, the gospel cannot end right there. That makes me feel uncomfortable. Let me tidy this thing up just a bit. Let me clarify. Let me tie up some loose ends. And so somebody along the way kind of added verses 9 to 20. Those who uh, examine language, they will say that if you take a close look at the language of Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20, it doesn't sound like Mark. He, whoever wrote that uses language that Mark never used. Now, some would say, well, he just felt inspired to use it in that moment. Perhaps, perhaps, but most gospel writers, they have a style. They got a swag. They have a certain way in which they communicate. And Mark's been communicating in the same way all the way up to Mark chapter 16, verse 8. And then it dramatically changes, verses 9 to 20. I conclude that Mark ended his gospel in verse 8. And I think he did it on purpose. I think he ends with these women leaving the tomb in dumbfounded silence on purpose. If you've been with us any amount of time over the last six months, you've heard me tell you that the original audience of Mark's gospel track were believers living in the mid-60s of the first century in and around Rome and they were being severely persecuted. They received this gospel track about 30 years after the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those believers living in the mid-60s of the first century, they um, were facing enormous persecution at the hands of the Romans. Because of their explicit faith in Jesus, the Roman government was leveling heavy taxation against them. The government was seizing their property, uh, taking away their assets, removing their jobs. The Roman centurions, the Roman military, was abducting some Christian children under cover of night, throwing some Christian individuals into the Colosseum to be devoured by the roaring lions. And some devout Christians were being uh, taken and speared alive, set ablaze to ignite and to illuminate Nero's gardens at night. And all of this was done in persecution and the goal of all persecution is to silence the voice. Let me say that again. The goal of all persecution is to silence the voice. And so those Christians living in and around Rome in the mid-60s, the first century, they were getting quiet. They were saying, if, if my explicit faith in Jesus Christ is gonna land me in the Colosseum, with gladiators or lions, if my faith in Jesus Christ is gonna cause me to be speared alive and set ablaze to ignite Nero's gardens at night, if, if, if my uh, following Jesus is gonna cost my job and my money and my reputation and I'm gonna be targeted for heavy taxation just because of my faith in Jesus, I don't know if I'm gonna be so adamant. And so some of those Christians living in the mid-60s of the first century were being quiet. 
When they got the gospel track, when they got to the end of Mark's gospel, they came to verse 8 and they saw these women leaving the tomb saying nothing to anyone. And the way they responded must have been, you can't be quiet. Remember, Agero, remember, he has been risen. He has been raised. He is alive. Remember, Agero, because of Agero, you can't be quiet. What they were saying to the text, the text was saying right back to them. The text was saying to those living in the mid-60s of the first century, you can't be quiet. Remember Agero. Remember he has been raised. He has risen. Remember Agero. Because Jesus is alive, you can't be quiet regardless of the persecution. Because Jesus is alive, you can't be quiet even if you lose your job. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, you can't be quiet even if you're targeted for heavy taxation. Even if you're laughed at and ridiculed and made fun of. Even if persecution comes down your street, you can't be quiet. Why? Remember Agero. And what those early readers heard, you heard. Because when I read the text, you were uncomfortable. And the thought came to your mind, it can't end that way. They can't go out and say nothing. They've got to speak. Remember Agero. I mean, you want to shout at Mary Magdalene. You want to shout at Mary, the mother of James. You want to shout at Salome. And you want to say, you can't be quiet. Are you kidding me? Remember a girl. And what you shout to the text, the scripture text shouts right back at you. There's been no culture that has cozied up to Christianity. Because Christianity makes exclusive claims against the culture. Christianity makes exclusive claims that Jesus is the only savior of the universe. Listen, we, we live in a culture that is hostile towards Christianity. Every culture, every society, every nation is hostile towards Christianity to one degree or the other. And even our American culture living here in 2019 even the American culture that we live in, hostile toward Christianity. You felt it. You know it. There's a muting of the church. There's a silencing of saints. It's okay to be religious in the American culture. Just don't be fanatical. It's okay to be religious. Just don't be exclusive in your claims of Christ. It's okay to be religious, but you cannot say that Jesus is the only way unto heaven and that anybody who doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ will go for to an eternal place called hell. You can't say that. That's not being tolerant. And our culture is pushing, nudging, and forcing the church to be muted. We get to the end of Mark's gospel, which I believe is Mark chapter 16, verse 8. And what we scream at the text, the text screams back at us. For the text says to you, Christian, living in the 21st century, you can't be quiet. Remember, Agero. Remember, he has been raised. Because he has been raised, that one word changes everything. You must remember a garo. You can't be quiet, businessman. You can't be quiet, businesswoman. You can't be quiet, senior adult. You cannot be silent, teenager. 
You cannot be silent, athlete. You cannot be silent, church member. You cannot be silent about the claims of Christ. Remember Agaro. That one word changes everything because Jesus has been raised from the dead. You cannot, you must not, you ought not walk out of here with a holy hush. You cannot walk out with a holy hush. You must tell a dying world that Jesus has been raised. The reason I came this morning was just to tell you that I serve a risen Savior and he's in the world today. And I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer and just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Church, don't ever forget a garo. It's a game changer. This is the crux of Christianity. It's the core of our salvation because Jesus was slain for our sin. He was placed in our grave on the third day, on the first day of the week. Jesus got up. He got up out of the grave. Jesus has been raised and it changes everything. So don't ever forget Agaro. Friend, if you're here today and you have never pledged your allegiance to Lord Jesus, Today, I invite you to trust him. You can trust him because he's trustworthy. He took your sin and nailed it to the cross so that you don't have to bear it. He took your hell upon himself. And he invites any and everyone to confess him as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved Go from no faith to faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've never pledged your ultimate allegiance to King Jesus, when the first note of the first song is struck, I want you to come down, take me or one of the pastors by the hand and say, I trust this Jesus to be my king. Maybe you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus. You're a believer in the Lord. You love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you've got a spouse who's lost You've got a family member, a son or a daughter, an aunt or an uncle, and you just want to come and pray for them? Maybe, maybe, friend, you're a follower, but you're far too quiet. The world has muted you. And today, do not walk out that door with a holy hush. You walk out that door remembering a garrow. Maybe you need to come and join this church. Let this church be your, your faith family. Whatever it is that the Spirit of God is leading you to do today, you respond in obedience. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Father, we pray that you are honored and glorified. Draw lost people unto yourself. Strengthen the saved. Build up your church and help us to walk out remembering a garrow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.